0: We have been speaking about Dong giving and taking, as is uh, discussed and presented in the Lojong teachings, the mind training teachings. We find it uh, here at uh, the beginning of the text by Dharma We also find it at the uh, beginning of the seven-point mind training by Geshe Chikawa, which came later. And the presentation of uh, or emphasis on deepest bodhicitta as the way to uh, be able to uh, destroy or get rid of the uh, self-grasping, which uh, is uh, what we're trying to do with this uh, Donglin practice. We're trying to obviously help others, but uh, in order to do that, we have to uh, recognize that what is causing their problems and what is causing our own problems is this uh, grasping for an impossible false self of self and uh, others and of uh, suffering and of cause and effect and of uh, everything. And, uh, this comes from a long Indian tradition, Indian Buddhist uh, tradition. We have this in the Gargana's teachings, Devas teachings, etc. And, mm-hmm. uh, here we're focusing on taking on the three poisonous, uh, or toxic, uh, disturbing emotions. Longing desire, anger, and naivety. And we, uh put the main emphasis here on this longing desire since that is usually singled out as the greatest obstacle to meditation and specifically to concentration it is uh... sometimes confusing for us uh, westerners because we confuse attachment with uh... with love uh, with love and uh, there is a a difference uh, here particularly in terms of romantic love. The word attachment in English uh, has uh, two usages. One is a positive usage which is the bond between for instance a mother and a baby that uh, without making this sort of uh, positive attachment or feeling of connection between the two then this is uh, extremely (coughs) detrimental to the health of the baby. So when we talk about overcoming attachment we're not talking about getting rid of a feeling of connectiveness with uh, others, that absolutely is not what we're talking about. And uh, when we speak about uh, love in uh, Buddhism, love is the wish for others to be happy and to have the, the causes for happiness and it's unconditional it doesn't matter what the other person uh, does or uh, what, the, uh, uh, what they do for us we need to differentiate very much in dealing with others uh, between the person and their behavior you know the person is imputation on the behavior but on everything else as well so their behavior they act in a destructive type of way we need to reject that this is something that they need to overcome but we don't lose the wish for the person to be happy and to stop acting that way so that they don't continue to make causes for themselves to be unhappy and to suffer. So, there's a big difference uh, here. We don't want to identify and solidify the person with their negative behavior. And similarly, when we uh, love somebody We don't want to just identify them. You know, I love you as long as you're nice to me. If you're not nice to me, I don't love you anymore. So that's not uh, what we're uh, talking about. Remember the definition of uh, this longing desire. It is uh, exaggerating the good qualities of something and adding good qualities that aren't there and ignoring the negative side so it's not actually dealing with the reality of the person so we have love for the person but we don't want to possess them you know, you are mine this uh, type of thing which we can have in many types of relationships, not just a sexual relationship can be within the family, you are my children, you know, you have to obey me. It can be in a work situation, you are my employees, and you have to do what I say. The sort of thing that, you know, there is a solidly existent me that is going to possess, you know, you. Or possess things. This is one of the, you know, the strongest root disturbing attitude. It's called a diluted attitude toward a transitory collection, transitory network. I call it, it's a ter- terrible term. There's no easy way of uh, translating it. It is a uh, an attitude, if you look at the definition, always have to look at the definition. It is that attitude of uh, Uh, It's aimed at the two interpretations, either the aggregates so body, mind, everything we perceive, the emotions and so on or at the person, it's imputed on it, but uh, what it's throwing out, this is what it is doing is uh, throwing out like a net onto this concept of me and mine. So, either onto the, and this is what we're doing all the time that this is me and you are mine. And we identify it, make it solidly, although all of this is transitory, it's changing all the time, make it into a solid thing. So, we cast, cast out this net and then catch it. We want it like that. Or onto me and I'm the one that possesses this these things so it's very interesting when we examine for instance uh, I find it a very very good exercise to ask people to bring a collection of photographs of themselves from when they were a baby every few years up to now and you look at all of these and You know, you say, well, they're all pictures of me. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? They look completely different. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What in that makes it me? Is there something on the side of the object that establishes it as me? Nevertheless, it's not somebody else either, is it? So this is a very good exercise, actually, for starting to analyze voidness. There's an absence of anything on the side of the object that makes it me, but we have a, an idea, a concept of me, it's a convention and it refers to all of this, you know, all these various pictures but there's nothing on the side of it holding it up and making it me because it's all different, it's all changed. So we have this disturbing Attitude in which we're throwing out, you know, almost like a net or a hook, you know, ah, that's me. Or we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see, you know, we're overweight and getting gray and so on, and that's not me. <laughs> you know, or we look at what the scale says when we weigh ourselves, you know, no, no, no that can't be me. Uh, we have this very funny idea of the me. This is part of this whole self-grasping. So the point being that uh, we need to identify this longing desire because it's based on this deluded attitude toward a transitory network. This is the term jigda. a very difficult term to uh, translate. But a very important one to try to recognize in ourselves. Everything's me and mine. Okay. Uh, This, I think, is uh, quite essential to recognize and to understand and to see it in ourselves. If we're going to do this practice of uh, Dong Len. Or any practices aimed at uh, getting rid of this self grasping to recognize what it leads to, these disturbing emotions, and what are these disturbing emotions, and to see that they don't work as a mechanism for making something secure which can't possibly be made secure because it doesn't exist. This false me. So, This is what makes Donglen of the Disturbing Emotions difficult, is that we don't want to do it. We grasp for a me that doesn't want to experience the suffering of not only others, but not even our own sufferings. We don't even acknowledge that uh, we have them, although, you know, as, as if there were a me that was separate from all of, you know, what we experience. And that I come into the room and now experience it, and then go out of the room. <laughs> or I don't even want to go into that room, so here I am. It can be described as a dualistic feeling. There are many ways of describing it. But as if there's a me that exists all on its own, isolated from everything, and that I don't want to deal with you. I don't even want to deal with me. (laughs) This type of uh, thing. And we have a very strong habit and tendency to feel like that. So it's not, you know, it's very insidious. It's not just that we believe this, it feels like this. That's what makes it so compelling. And when we have this voice in our head feels as though there's me inside there talking, <coughs> complaining. What should I do now? And then we make a decision as if we press a button inside and you know operate this machine, this body. And that certainly is not the way it is. So we have this feeling that I don't want to take on your suffering. I don't want to take on these poisonous attitudes of uh, everyone and this feeling ripens from karmic tendencies and the tendency to have this grasping for uh, impossible uh, me so the second section is dealing with uh, karma and uh, what is preventing us from wanting to uh, help others deal with their suffering and it is uh, uh, because of the various things that we experience that are ripening from our destructive behavior and so if we want to stop you know, get rid of these uh, obstructions we need to first stop the destructive behavior as I said when we start to when we feel like doing something to discriminate that this is you know is this helpful or is this harmful beneficial or detrimental and then we have the freedom to decide to do it or not do it and if it's going to be harmful don't do it self-control this first level and we want to counter it with uh, something positive so this karma Mm -hmm. is the compulsion that drives us to act in a way that is similar to our past behavior and to encounter things happening to us that are similar to what we did before so when we act out you know this compulsiveness, like an impulse it, it actually it draws you into actually doing it is how it's uh, described and it is you know, we don't have control over that. You know, just you—you just do it. And acting out of uh, compulsive compulsive impulses leaves karmic aftermath. As a general term, there are various varieties of that. We don't need to go into all the details, but it builds up karmic tendencies to repeat our past uh, behavior. You know, in the West we talk about neural pathways. So it. Uh, uh, becomes easier and easier, you know, a tendency to act like that uh, again and to get into situations in which we experience things similar to what we did happening to us. This we don't really think of uh, in our Western way of uh, looking at things, but uh, this is uh, more what Gudharma Rakshita is talking about in this uh, section, this uh, second type of uh, ripening that is similar to the causes. In the first case, the karmic aftermath ripens into a feeling of liking or wanting to repeat the action. We want to look at our phone again. We want to yell at somebody again. We want to deal with something in a very selfish way, because we've done that before. And we're accustomed to that. That's almost like our default setting or I want to clean the house yet again or correct my paper yet again even though I've gone, gone over it so many times You know, it can be in a positive way, a perfectionist type of way as well and when we feel like doing it or want to do it, then as I said we have the space to decide yes or no that's a little bit easier to deal with in the second case, it, the karmic tendency also ripens into a feeling like doing something, for instance, uh, looking at our phones while crossing the street. And compulsively we do that, and what happens is we experience getting hit by a car. This is quite important to understand in terms of uh, you know, the ripening of uh, this karmic aftermath. Our karmic aftermath doesn't cause the other person to hit us. You know, often we have that misunderstanding that I'm responsible for what you did. It's all my fault. Which is not the case. Our karmic aftermath ripens into our experiencing being hit. It's their karmic aftermath that ripens into them hitting us. What we're talking about is, what do you experience when we're talking about the ripening of karma? I experience having this type of body. You know, there's another thing that ripens from karma, karmic aftermath. I experience having this type of body that is going to grow old and fall apart and die. You know, that's just part of, that's the uncontrollably recurring Aspect of samsara, isn't it? We grow old, we get sick, and you die. Limited body, limited mind, we can't understand everything. We're helpless when we're a baby. Very inefficient type of uh, body that we have in that sense. To look at it all, it's really, you know, incredible that it works, but uh, on the other hand it uh, has a lot of flaws having this type of limited body, limited mind. When we have this term sentient being Buddha is not a sentient being, someone with a limited mind. Limited hardware, I uh, call it. So this is the second aspect of what is uh, ripening that's similar to the cause in other words we experience things happening to us you know, because of this uh, and, and how do we get into that we get into that by feeling like doing something and the impulse to do it and that makes us get into a situation let's say always uh, why are we attracted to A partner who always abuses us (laughs) you know somebody that is always going to yell at us and so on this type of thing you know there's that we get attracted to someone why do you feel attracted to this one and not that one that's the ripening of karma and compulsively we pursue that type of relationship, and then we experience that they are cruel to us, they yell at us, they don't treat us nicely, and so on. Now, this is how we experience this ripening of karma. So it's not simply that we experience, well, we get angry, we yell at people, and so you know, we continue to always yell at people. <clears throat> That's one aspect, but it's the second one that Dharmaraksata is going to focus on. And we need to uh, build up more positive habits, more positive neural network, uh, neural pathways, so that they will ripen into getting into situations in which things work out. Things go well just on a a regular level, and when we dedicate this positive force that's built up, either negative force or positive force, when we dedicate that positive force toward enlightenment, you know, with bodhicitta, then it acts as a cause that will bring us to enlightenment, rather than as a cause to just make for a nicer samsara, (laughs) We need to have a nicer samsara in the sense that if we're overwhelmed with, you know, starvation and so on, in the war zone, you know, there's very little that we can do. So you want better situations, but that's not the aim. The aim is not to just that's just a, uh, a provisional step along the way. So bodhicitta is really essential here. In the end, then, it comes down to the fact that we are our own worst enemies, that we are the creators of our own happiness and the creators of our own unhappiness. We can't place the blame on others. You know, we need to place the blame on ourselves, not in the sense of, you know, a solidly existent me. and we put the blame on it, and therefore I'm guilty and I'm bad, and all of that not in that sense, but see that this self-cherishing, which is I'm the most important one, I always have to have my way, that this is the the problem. And it's based on believing that this me that always has to have its way is a solidly existent thing. Dharma puts it nicely, he says, in short, the strikings like the lightning on our heads of disasters never wished for are the sharp weapons of negative karma circling back on us like the murder of a swordsmith by his own fashioned sword now let's take care about our negative deeds in this uh, second section then dharma rakshita goes through a long long list of negative things that happen to us you have a question
2: yeah, clarification, where in the
0: text do you set the demarcation? I'm taking the, as yes, where in the text, that was verse 46. Okay. I can give you the number of the verses. I'm just taking verses from here and there. Yeah. I You know, there's no time to go through the entire text verse by verse. Mm-hmm. So, just taking some sample verses. Mm-hmm. So, it's at the end of the second session in which uh, Dharma Rakshita sums up Section by saying that basically, we're like the, the person who makes swords who's killed by you know, a sword that they made for themselves. They made, I should, should say. So that's the summary of it. So, what I would like to do is to go through uh, and, and have us um, contemplate some of these verses. So that, I think, is really what uh, uh, how we work with this text, is to see uh, how some of these syndromes that are explained in each of these verses, how they might apply to us. And to see that this is what is preventing us from being able to help others, to do this Dong practice, or to help others just in general, that we're always getting into difficult situations and because we're in these difficult situations it prevents us from helping others so I've chosen a few verses and why don't we spend some time on each of them contemplating and seeing does this make sense, does this make sense in terms of my own experience And does it give me a clue of what to work on? The first one is verse 14. When only nasty words befall our ears, this is the sharp weapon of negative karma circling back on us from our our misdeeds of speech, such as slander and the likes. Now let's discredit all faults in our speech. So what does that mean? When we hear you know people say nasty things to us people say cruel things to us making fun of us criticizing us all the time you know so we hear these sort of nasty things this is weapon you know the wheel of sharp weapons coming back to us it's the result of us saying nasty things about others we say nasty things about others, we get into situations and meet, you know, compulsively we meet people and encounter people that are going to say nasty things to us. It what happens back to us. So if we want to break that uh, syndrome, you know, which is just repeating itself and repeating itself, we have to first recognize in ourselves how I say nasty things to other people. I say cruel things. And so he says, now let's discredit all faults in our speech. In other words, instead of saying nasty things, say positive things about others, or at least neutral things about others. Atisha said it very nicely, when alone, watch your mind. When with others, watch your speech. We have to be careful what we say. And if it's going to be something nasty, don't say it or something stupid don't say it. Hold your tongue, we say in English. And try to say to be positive things, we say. So let's examine ourselves, especially if we find that people say nasty things to us. Are we saying nasty things at all? You know, to others, or thinking nasty things even? And then we make this decision, because that really—you uh, know—you're speaking about being judgmental. We might not want to help somebody because they're suffering, and so we say, "Oh, you know, uh, you deserve that. You're no good. And, you know, you're lazy, and that's why uh, you know you don't go to work. And, you know, so you get a, you're hungry, and so on." So we don't want to help them take on their problems because we have this tendency to say nasty things about them, to think nasty things about them so you try to connect this with uh, what is preventing us from really helping others okay and also, obviously, if everybody is saying you know, you're know you stupid and saying nasty things to us, it's very hard to then be very positive. It's easy to get discouraged. So we want to change that pattern. That's the first step to be able to do these advanced practices, like mm-hmm. don't let these bodhisattva practices. So let's deal and think about this. Uh, first topic which is uh, saying nasty things about others and you don't necessarily have to say it to their face often we say it behind their back or about politicians. We're very good at saying nasty things about various politicians, aren't we? And again, there's a big difference between recognizing that, let's say, what a politician or what somebody is doing is destructive and wanting that to stop. There's a big difference between that and saying nasty words to them or about them. Those are quite different, aren't they? We still would like the person to be happy and to stop saying these things because it's, or stop doing these things. So you have to discriminate here what's going on. And try to recognize behind saying nasty words and cruel words is that we are exaggerating this is anger exaggerating the negative qualities they're so you know, terrible worst thing in the world that we say nasty things about it identify the person with it. You're bad. You're so horrible, because what you do is so horrible. Throwing out the net of me and mine. So you and yours, same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you recognize how if we are compulsively saying nasty things about others, why would we want to take on their problems and help them? It's a big obstacle, isn't it, to wanting to do that? So what comments or questions do you have about this particular exercise, you know, from your own reflections, from your own experience? When somebody has been verbally very nasty toward us, how do we respond? When they're not around, do we say nasty things about them? How do you deal with that type of situation, that type of experience? This is what we're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When we think about it and reflect about our experience with this person who is always so nasty toward us and what they said to us and yelling at us and criticizing us and you know, making fun of us in front of others and so on. How do we speak about them afterwards to others? And can we just transform that and say, well, this person had a lot of problems and it made them act in very unpleasant ways, but they also had very good qualities as well. and in that way not hold a grudge and not speak badly about them. Because if we speak badly about them, this is karmic cause for encountering, getting involved with people who will speak badly about it, you know, to us. That's the wheel of sharp weapons, coming back, you know, like a boomerang us.
3: Yeah. Um, You want the microphone, please? It's it's okay. Well,
0: the microphone microphone, is better.
3: (coughs) In my contemplation, the speech is one thing, but I understand from you it also applies to your thinking. So to think badly about others, that is even much more difficult. Behind their back or whatever, you had a meeting, you know, what an awful person is that, you know. You just think it, but you could have said it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that is the same. But then I was also thinking about the ripening. I don't know if it goes on a one-to-one basis, (laughs) but, ripening can take a long time. It can be, I, have, um, I may have been using a lot of slander in previous lives, which only now come to ripening, mm-hmm. which I thought when I was, con- that's not fair <laughs> to me. That's how I thought about it. But of course it's fair, because yeah. I have done this.
0: Well, why should the universe be fair? <laughs>
3: yes, exactly, <laughs> yes. But I was also thinking, Um, can I offset this negative karma by accumulating merit?
0: Well, can we offset negative karma by accumulating merit? First of all, Mm -hmm. the word merit, we need to uh, understand. Merit gets into a big topic. I have a very long article about that. Does it mean that we have to earn something and then deserve it this whole idea of merit implies that and it's not that we have to earn it or we have to deserve it in order for something positive to happen we're talking about negative potential and positive potential negative force and positive force just simply cause and effect so if we have a lot of negative force, you want to counter it with positive force, but you also want to somehow stop building up more negative force. So in this sense, and and purify it away in the sense of uh, what we need to understand are the 12 links of dependent arising. This is very, very central To the Buddhist teachings. It describes samsara, uncontrollably recurring rebirth, and uncontrollably recurring situations. So, with, because of this ignorance, this unknowing, we don't know that we, you know, what we imagine doesn't correspond to reality, then we act in disturbing ways because of the disturbing emotions, we act in destructive ways, it builds up karmic aftermath, and then it ripens. So how does it ripen? Well, we need to hold the development of the body for it to ripen, the aggregates and so on. Okay, so after that develops, it ripens into a feeling of, that's the aggregate of feeling, it's a feeling of happiness or unhappiness. When they talk about neutral feeling, it's not the point that's right in between happy and unhappy. It's talking about these states of higher dhyana where you're deeply absorbed in, you know, this uh, almost like a trance like state in which, you know, you don't feel either happy or unhappy. That's what it means when they talk about neutral feeling. But uh, Normally, in every moment, we feel somewhere on that scale, that spectrum of happy or unhappy. And then what happens is that we have, it's usually translated as craving, but actually the Sanskrit word means thirst. Dying of thirst. And so, if we have a little bit of happiness, then you know we want more and more we don't want to be parted from it because we're so thirsty and if we have unhappiness we're, oh, so like thirsty we want to get rid of it so we're exaggerating the qualities of happy and unhappy and then this word grasping is there again which is used to translate a different word in Tibetan and Sanskrit, which means to obtain. We do something that's going to obtain the result. Which is, there are many subdivisions here, but the main one is me. I want to not be parted from happiness. I want to be parted from unhappiness. And that triggers the karmic aftermath. It triggers it into ripening. It activates it. So it is very very profound. If you think about it and apply it in ordinary life, what is happening? I feel like doing something, right? Because I feel unhappy. So I feel like yelling at you. I feel like saying something nasty about you because I'm experiencing being unhappy. And I think somehow, if I express my unhappiness, and there's anger there as well, that somehow it'll make me feel better. Which, of course, it doesn't. But in any case, you know, and me, you know, that'll make me, this solid me, feel better. That triggers the compulsion to actually say something nasty. That's the mechanism of the 12 links. It's it's incredible how it explains how this whole karmic thing works. And so what, you know, where do we attack this? Well, you can say, well, you have to get rid of the unawareness, you have to get rid of the ignorance, which is true. On a practical level, we experience being feeling happy or unhappy and I use the expression that uh, the young Serkan uses all the time nothing special I feel happy I feel unhappy well nothing special about that so what it'll pass everything's impermanent changes all the time so we don't have to have this thirst and this, you know, clinging and all of this that comes from that. I feel like, you know, going and having a piece of cake. So what? We don't have to do it. You know, I'm unhappy and I think that eating chocolate's going to make me happy. You know, I'm happy being with you. So you know, don't leave me. Don't ever leave. Don't ever go. I can't live without you. Uh, grasp. Uh, we're attached because we're feeling happy, and we not want. We don't want it to go away. This type of uh, thing. I want more. How much of? delicious food you have to eat in order to enjoy it? It's a very interesting question. <laughs> if I eat more, I'll enjoy it more. Really? <laughs> so, there are all these things to analyze. So, within ourselves, you know, if we want to break these syndromes we have to see what to work on and it comes down to when you out of feeling happy or unhappy you want to do something you feel like doing something which is ripening from you know the happy and unhappy is ripening from some karmic thing wanting to do something again is ripening from another karmic thing it could come from you know all sorts of different things in previous lifetimes. Is it fair or unfair? that's irrelevant. It's just what's happening. And so what we want to do is not act it out. Don't, you know, have this. Don't activate you know, more karmic aftermath. What we want to do. If you've gotten rid of any possibility to ripen, to activate this karmic aftermath, you can't say that that karmic aftermath can hamper you in any way. That's also some sort of imputation, that there's a potential. There's only a potential if it, something can only be a cause in relation to an effect If something can't give an effect any longer, it's no longer a cause. So it's gone. So if you get rid of what will activate something in order to bring about a result, in other words, the understanding of voidness, then that potential is no longer a potential. It's no longer there. It's no longer a cause. That's how you get rid of it. So, it's very important to understand these twelve links, not just some intellectual scheme that you know, who needs this. So, it gives us a clue of how to deal with karma. How do we change our behavior, and to recognize that really look at the uh, practice of the four close placements of mindfulness on the feelings happy and unhappy we recognize the cause of suffering, the second noble truth it's how we respond to feeling happy and unhappy that causes all our problems so nothing special happy or unhappy You know? Happy? Well, nice. Unhappy? Not so nice, but... So what? I don't feel like going to work today, so what? You know? Nothing special. You go to work anyway. It's like that, isn't it? This is the type of attitude that, you know, I would like to sleep longer. You know, I'm so happy lying here in this nice, warm, comfortable bed. Well, so what? You have to get up. So if we can apply this type of response to happy and unhappy and just deal with what we need to deal with in an intelligent way, then you don't cause yourself problems and suffering. I want to stay in bed because I'm so happy here but I can't, then I'm frustrated, me, 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 solid me, poor me, lying here and, you know, I have to get up. Poor me, I have to go to work. And then you really suffer, don't you? So you just do. Just do it. You you can describe that as, you know, just act in a non-dual way. You can describe it in many ways you know, what I have to do and then me that doesn't want to do it, you know, this sort of duality there. Many ways of describing it, the point is to just <laughs> just do just do it with wisdom and compassion in that sense. Any other comments? And the universe shouldn't, be, there's no reason why it should be fair You know, you know, the laws of cause and effect. Is it fair that when you bang your foot against the table in the dark, it hurts?
3: <laughs> Is it fair? Why shouldn't the universe be fair?
0: Why should it be?
3: Why not?
0: Uh, it, uh, it should only be, if you think about it, the universe should be fair because it was created by God, and God you know, wants everything to be fair. There's a difference between things being fair and, you know, it's not fair that, um, you know, my business investment didn't work. You know, I mean, it's just reality. There's just cause and effect. Fair has to do with some sort of judgment. And the implication is that there is a judge That's outside the system, and judges it. So the idea of fairness and justice is really coming from a different cultural uh, framework than the Buddhist one. And so much of our misunderstanding comes because we are looking at Buddhism and trying to fit it into the conceptual constructs of our own cultural framework. And it doesn't fit. So that's projection. We project onto it (coughs) these sort of things. Like merit, you have to deserve something, you have to merit it, you have to earn it. So then you start to think, you know, does my dog deserve to be fed? What does the dog need to do in order to earn the right, the merit, to be fed by me? You know? Does that plant deserve to be watered? I mean it's, it's just it becomes silly after a while, you know, just because just because it exists. You know, the dog needs to be fed. <clears throat> Doesn't have to do anything in order to be fed. I but, mean this is but love. If it
2: is spiritual food it's okay, isn't <laughs> spiritual it is case Pardon?
0: Spiritual food spiritual to the dog, food. the dog might not appreciate that. <laughs> dog just wants to be fed. We take on the responsibility of having an animal, doesn't have to do anything. You have a baby, doesn't have to do anything, whether the baby is, you know, naughty or not. Still, you feed the baby, doesn't have to deserve, you know, you don't deserve to be fed. You were crying all night, you kept me up. I'm gonna punish you. This is a different conceptual framework that you have to earn something and then you deserve to be paid. And unfortunately the idea of merit seems to be like that. It gives that flavor. So I avoid that term. Which is very different from saying that the people who translate the word as merit are stupid. Right? And no good. And they're bad translators. See, that's very different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Saying that uh, this term can, you know, leads to misunderstanding. Therefore, you give an alternative that uh, you know, you explain how it, it doesn't have misunderstanding, but you don't identify the translator who uses merit as being stupid and say something, you know, oh, they're terrible. you start saying terrible things about them, and they're going to start saying terrible things about you. Works like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? This is the whole point. It's not that we lose our ability to discriminate what is helpful and what is harmful. We still can discriminate without saying nasty things about what is harmful. And the person who does what's harmful It's important to differentiate. Anything else in terms of this?
4: Yeah. I'm waiting. Mm-hmm. I'm switching this one. I'll wait for a moment. Is that it? No. 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 Um uh, I'm referring to when I started contemplating about uh, nasty words before my ears. <laughs> And of course, there are examples when I want to talk or think nasty back, but I also found actually two or three examples uh, with friends that the opposite happens with me. I feel sorry for them, and I've had, I have a feeling I should help them somehow, but. It's difficult because uh, the relationship is so bad, but I don't talk, I don't think badly about them. So I stop the relationship or pause for maybe months. And I I wonder what this is because sometimes I feel like this person is like a, a smaller sister that I should take care of even if she's nasty to me. It's very strange. Can you say something
0: about this? Well, the fact that we don't say things nasty back to them or about them is, is very helpful in terms of you know, the karmic uh, habits that we uh, build up. But uh, taking a distance from the person when they're not receptive to our help is also uh, a very wise policy because uh, the more that we stay with them, the more that we are offering the circumstances for them to continue to say nasty things. So in order to help them avoid building up more negative karmic consequences, we take a distance. So this is, this is actually quite helpful, it's not as though we are abandoning them. You can take that distance with the motivation of helping them to avoid more suffering. Yes, but I
4: also get sort of bad conscience. I, I think uh, maybe now I haven't talked to her for three months. Now I should try again. Something like that.
0: It's, it's very strange. I, I, I can't get free of it, sort of, I, oh, I should have done that. I don't. Know. Well, first of all, the concept of should <laughs> is uh, a little bit heavy. Yeah. I should do this because if I don't do this, I'm bad so if we can quiet that down a little bit then the question is is it helpful for me to contact this person or is it uh, it not? and then you can either try and see what their response is or wait until they contact you maybe they don't want to have any further contact but I think the initial thing is to try after a sufficient period of time and see how they respond everything develops you know over time things change but uh... to push yourself on the person especially if you get a negative response best too. they're not ready they're not ready Yeah. I mean, I've I've had the same experience. You know, you want to establish contact again, and you send an email or something, you know, how are you doing? And they answer with, you know, one word, fine. And that's it. (laughs) You know, so obviously they don't want to engage. Anything else? Yeah. Can you <coughs> behind you?
3: Could you please please put this mic on the middle? When you turn it off, just put it in the middle because then it's on mute. So don't have to
5: put it Yes, it's about these um, karmic consequences and how to deal with it and to the method is to and I really understand and all the examples you are coming up with that it's really helpful to, you know, try to deal with things in a (coughs) different way and this will change your habitual patterns. But the examples you have come up with is not like you know, like very severe. I mean, uh, in in Asian culture, also the the karmic explanation has been used, misused as everything human, also to explain how things are sure. as they are, and they kind of in, individualize the problem and said that, yeah, well, all these kids are starving, and I mean, you can't use the same explanation and and tell them that you don't have the right attitude. You should deal with your hunger in a more constructive way, you know. So it's problematic the, the, um, to understand. Uh, I, I do realize that we apply the Western thinking from Christianity upon the Asian thinking, and this is more like cause and, and effect. But when it comes to dealing with uh, the problems and, and making people um, more able to help themselves and also showing compassion it's a, really, it's a kind of complicated and karmic uh, especially when you, it's been explained for things you did in, in former lives
0: well it's, to explain things in terms of former lives is not very skillful to start with especially if we say well you deserve it so shut up but uh, when there is suffering and we are like People in a famine are starving or have no drinking water, like in Puerto Rico now. And you have to give them whatever you can give them. And it's only, you know, if you, if you think about it, if you want to talk about karma in that situation, what you want to encourage them to do is to share it with everybody. You know, what is the cause of poverty is, is not sharing not giving not being generous so if in passing out you know food or water or something like that the people just you know hoard everything to themselves and don't share it with anybody else that's going to build up more karmic causes to have more poverty more starvation so in giving you definitely give and you encourage them to share it with, you know, everybody, you know, all the people who are suffering. I think that's the only way to deal with it in, you know, a Buddhist type of way. But certainly don't say, you know, you deserve this and in a past life, you know, you did this and that. I think the main cause is whether you believe in past lives or not. what you want to do is recognize the relation. You know, the explanation of karma is that if you have acted in a certain way, you will have the tendency to repeat that behavior and the tendency to get into situations in which something similar happens to you. Others don't share with you. I don't share, so I have the tendency to not want to share, to hoard things, and nobody else will share with me. Which is only natural. So you don't have to think in terms of what I did in my past life to recognize if others don't want to share with me, well, what comes together in the package of that is I don't want to share with them. So we look in ourselves How am I acting in a selfish way that I don't want to share? And it gives us a clue how to improve the situation. If I share with you, you're more likely to share with me. So you can deal with this without having to explain previous lives because that can turn people off and they can misunderstand that, that you deserve this, so shut up. And we want to avoid that type of You know, it's almost a self-righteous thing. You know, you were naughty, you were bad, so you deserve this. You had a question in the back.
6: Uh, I was just wondering why we have these court systems in. Well, I don't actually know about in Tibet and India and how they go about the court there. But in Norway, we, we have a court that is supposed to have an ideal of uh, being just, right? And then why? I can see your point that the universe doesn't have to be anything like fair or unfair or anything. It's just our concept or attachment to, to something that's mm. not really uh, real kind of but then I wondered um, yeah just why do we um make the uh, effort to have a court system that is supposed to be objectively and and just to to have a fair uh, kind of um, uh, sentence uh,
0: Yeah, well, I think in the court system and uh, justice, that uh, if somebody is causing a great deal of harm, you want to prevent them from causing more harm. Whether that's fair or not fair is irrelevant. It's just the fact out of compassion you want to prevent more suffering. Therefore you do whatever is necessary, differentiating the person from their behavior. So I wouldn't look at it as, you know, you're bad and I have to punish you. But uh, I am helping you by preventing you from causing more harm. And I think, I mean, I'm not that familiar with uh, Norwegian law, but it seems as though you're far you know, kinder in the administration of law than in many other countries which would execute you, <coughs> put you into a horrible prison situation in which you're going to get beaten up and raped and all sorts of horrible things happen to you. So it's out of kindness that you want to help this person. And if they're so bad, badly, you know, ingrained in this negative thing that uh, it's very hard to help them at least you prevent them from you know causing more harm. And from a karmic point of view, they have caused themselves so much suffering. It's like saying, you know, why kick a dying dog? You know, causing more pain. Yeah. There's no reason for that. Also, it was kind
6: of, because it's, it's a very person, personal thing, but I um, guess I was uh, in court for having uh, beaten a police officer, which were the person, not the, the same person, but another one of those police officers were just before I did that against him were uh, using violence against me as a police Mm -hmm. officer. And then I'm kind of, because I felt I was uh, doing this in, or actually I didn't feel anything because I kind of lashed out in with instinct. I didn't think... Right, compulsive. Yeah.
0: Compulsive behavior.
6: Yeah, and then... um, so I didn't think uh, that this person deserved that or or not, but I mean I felt um, attacked mm-hmm. in the first place. So that so I was afraid, and then people were coming and um, lifting me up with their force uh, because they were actually of course uh, more um, trained and uh, yeah stronger than me, and then mm-hmm. I just froze, or I don't know what really happened, and then it just, when I think about it, it's uh, my attachment to the outcome, maybe, that I I felt that when I got that punishment in court, then why didn't the police officer get some kind of, well, what's the objective, um, mm. So it's, uh, it's just, uh, I just noticed myself, uh, it was very uh, tough to hear the words that the universe isn't...
0: Well, there. yes, I mean, we get attached, not attached, isn't the right word, but we expect that it should be fair, yeah. that, you know, if I am, uh, if I have to experience negative consequences from having used violence, that the police officer should experience, also that it should be fair but the universe isn't fair necessarily and the point is not to get angry at that you know I mean that's just the way it is you know what can we do you know you could say that this person you know this again dependent arising it's not up to us There's, you know, the judge and the jury and the values and, you know, the political things that are going on and all sorts of other considerations of uh, why the police aren't similarly disciplined for using violence that uh, we are. And you can explain this in terms of karmic things and past lifetimes and so on, uh, if that makes any sense to you or not point is not to get angry about the whole situation and to just (coughs) deal with it, deal with it. But when we are attacked, of course, there's a difference between defending ourselves on the basis of anger and fear or defending ourselves on the basis of, you know, in theory, compassion, I want to stop you from, you know, doing something that's going to be so disastrous to you as well. In other words, acting on the basis of not anger, that's hard. That's very, very hard. But that's the ideal. But it doesn't mean that you just let everybody slap you around.
6: Kind of difficult to to balance that.
0: Yes, and you were just
6: saying because of course in aftermath I was like okay, or actually I didn't remember so much of it. Uh, not because I had been drinking or anything, but just because I was very, uh, I was in I don't know flight mode or freeze mode or something like that. Mm. Um, but of course the ideal afterwards is like. I wouldn't, if I were to experience something like that again, I wouldn't have, but also I didn't feel like I had the um, control over the situation to actually make that little space allowing myself. Exactly, that is
0: the big problem that we face in terms of karma, that we feel like doing something and then instantly we compulsively do it. And when we become more attentive to what's going on in our mind, then it slows down, in a sense. At least our perception of it slows down, so that uh, we can use our judgment to decide, you know, is it gonna help at all to, you know, hit this really strong policeman? You know, what is that gonna do? It's not gonna do anything. It's going to get me beaten up more. So then you just sort of, you know, peacefully go down on the floor and cover your head or something like that.
6: Yeah, because yeah, it's. Uh, I just heard my, my attorney was saying that you uh, had a similar case with uh, an elderly woman who was just, she was very thin and, and small and she was just, being put on the on the floor and Mm -hmm. uh, she was close to dying and still uh, and then the policemen were uh, taking uh, handcuffs on her and he said that even though if she were to die in that um, confrontation or whatever uh, then the police officer would still have their the just the Mm -hmm. justice on their side and the law on their side and that
0: Right, and it may not be fair that this is the case, but this is the situation and we have to deal with it. This is the point. If we can take some political action to change it, we can do that. But there are a lot of things that aren't fair. It's just the way that it is as part of samsara. This is what I mean when I say, you know, well, the universe isn't necessarily fair that it should be, we try to take, you know, bring about change to make things more, what should we say, reasonable. Okay. let's take one more example from the text, verse 21. At times when we're frustrated from the depths of our minds that our works are never accomplished, this is the sharp weapon of negative karma circling back on us from having caused interference to the hallowed one's deeds. Now let's rid ourselves of all our interference making." This, I think, is a very relevant one. If we're never able to finish anything that we're starting to do, that there's always interruptions and we can't finish it this is the result of having interrupted others so that we prevent them from finishing what they're doing and we're doing that so much many people are doing that so much these days with the constant texting and messaging and whatsapp and uh, you know all of this that we're constantly interrupting others as if we're so important and of course we're not finishing anything that we're doing because we're constantly multitasking so if we stop interrupting everybody else that would be the way you know from a karmic point of view to get others stopping interrupting us we'll be able to accomplish something and of course if we are constantly being interrupted and compulsively we have to always look at our phone and look at all these messages you can't really help anybody you're not able to accomplish that because right in the middle you get a message and you're so addicted you have to look at it and you have to answer it so I think this is very relevant thing, you know, that we're not so important that you have to tell everybody and send them the picture of what you ate for breakfast or, you know, what you see out of the window on the bus. Who cares? We think it's so important. And I'll send it to you and you'd better like it. <laughs> you know, and send me something back. And somehow that'll make me feel secure that I'm connected and I'm loved. And people think, I mean it really is, is a very strange syndrome. You know What is happening in the world nowadays? With all of this messaging. With the hope that it's going to make us more secure uh, by feeling connected, and it doesn't. That's the problem. So this whole point of interrupting is very, very essential. When we hear the, uh, um, in the 10 destructive types of behavior, idle chatter, that's re- basically referring to interrupting somebody else. Here it says hallowed one, so somebody's doing something positive <coughs> with something that we consider, something that is meaningless, which we consider as meaningful. It's really meaningful that you see what I ate for breakfast and approve of it and like it. <laughs> oh, you know, really, that's, that's great that you ate this. <laughs> that's idle chatter. But causing interruptions is what's really behind that. So let's examine ourselves. Do we do this? When I send an email or a message or call somebody on the phone, People don't do that so much anymore, but (laughs) but actually, the older people still like to use the phone and speak to somebody, but uh, if you call somebody, do you expect that they're going to drop everything and speak to us? We send a message, do we expect that they're going to drop everything and answer us immediately, and do we get really angry if they don't and impatient? Why haven't you answered me? It's really funny. I, uh, within my work, you know the, uh, um, what do you want to call it, the key, the core team, of my project, we have one messaging service that uh, we use to communicate with each other, and there's one person on the team that uh, I, you know, he writes, and then he turns it off. <laughs> yeah. You know, he doesn't wait for me to answer. I find that terribly frustrating. So I answer, and then I have to wait until later he turns the, the, you know, the messaging <laughs> service on and looks at it. So, and then answers. So this is the type of thing that we, we look for, you know. Uh, do I expect that I'm so important, me, 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 the solid me, that you have to drop everything and answer me instantly I'm more important than than what you're doing and then of course karmic consequences that other people are always going to we're never going to accomplish anything because we're multitasking and getting interrupted and distracted and so on Okay. (laughs) Blue <laughs> Okay. So this thing of interrupting others is really very delicate, actually, because there are two situations. One is interrupting others with something meaningless. it's one thing. And the other thing is if we're working as part of a team and you need to communicate with each other and ask somebody to do this or to do that in order for you to be able to continue what you're doing. I face this all the time. And they're asking me you know, for something that they're doing, a question and so on. And if I don't answer immediately, then it delays the work. But the result of that is that at least in my own case I'm never able to actually accomplish what uh, I need to do because I'm answering everybody's questions on my team. And when I need something from them again I certainly don't like to be kept waiting till tomorrow. So that's a very difficult situation of how to deal with that in a work situation. Some of the guidelines, and I'm not very good at this, is that you don't send work-related emails after work hours or on the weekends. Well, I work it. (laughs) You know, I don't work at set hours. I basically work all the time. And I don't take weekends off and like that. So, if I'm doing something on the weekend, you know, my thought is that if I don't ask them to do it now, by Monday I will have forgotten. (laughs) So then you send the email and they get annoyed or they don't look at it. So. As I say, I'm guilty of this as well. But I think one of the things, at least with uh, personal conversations that are not work-related, I always try to start it out with, are you busy? Do you have a moment? And if they say they're busy, I'll call you back. Let me know when it would be a good time to chat. This is, I think, a very helpful strategy. There are those who have great discipline. You have this in universities. You know, I have office hours, and anybody who wants to come see me and ask questions, you know, students, these are my office hours. Other than that, you can't come and bother me. But that doesn't work when you're working in a team, does it? Like that, and you know, in terms of emails and so on, when it's outside of work hours, what isn't a bad idea is to just sort of put it in your outbox, but don't send it yet, and send it Monday morning, and be patient, and don't, that you're not going to be able to get an answer over the weekend or at night when you want to work late. That's very tough and I think also you need to ask your individual team members what their customs are and respect that. But that me, 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 I want that instant gratification. And now we're not talking just about instant gratification of getting a like on my Facebook page, but uh, the instant gratification of getting an answer to something that you need in order to be able to continue your work. That's tough. That's very tough. And in our modern society, in which we are multitasking all the time, it really is very hard to accomplish anything. It is. But how to deal with that when everybody else is multitasking? I don't know. What do you think? What's your experience? I don't know if you work in a team, any of you. Yeah. Can you uh, have the microphone, please?
5: the Difference between sending email and then expecting it to be read and answered. So, I used to get uh, text messages and emails from, and I work in the governmental, you know, uh, not in private enterprise. And she sent me all night time and, and uh, in the weekend as well. But we had a mutual agreement, she just wanted to get it off her chest. She had mm-hmm. a huge workload worked so many hours, and, but she didn't expect me to answer it. So mm-hmm. that was a very, of course I had to accept that. She was the boss and I, I could see she was working hard. So the, um, so if people try not to look at their job email during the weekends, they won't even notice that they have gotten an email. So, you know, I think it's uh, uh, the, the
0: you need to make an agreement.
5: Yeah, it should because if, if they think uh, the expectations is that they have to answer immediately, and then they can get you know, frustrated. We just say that I have to get this, you know, send yeah. it out, otherwise I don't get the flow in my work, and you don't have to open it before Monday, and mm-hmm. it's fine.
0: Yeah, I think that's very wise. Mm-hmm. But then we have to negotiate with each member of the team. Mm-hmm. What works with them and what doesn't work with them? Because
5: maybe turn off that sound. When you, I mean, when I never have that sound on, you know, from receiving anything, because then I feel like I'm in a rat. I'm in a rat. Uh, and myself. I'm a rat in a kind of experiment, you know. Yeah. You know, nobody should have any sounds on.
0: Right. Mute your you know mobile device or you know your laptop so that it doesn't make that sound, and we get a message. Because almost instinctively, we feel that we have to reply. Again, this idea of, I don't want to miss something, maybe it's important. Yeah?
2: Well, I experience more or less the same things as you mentioned. And I think in my workplace it works quite well, because we don't expect... uh, others to read the mails during the night time and in the weekends. But if something re- is really urgent, we text. Mm-hmm. Because that might happen, that uh, things are very urgent. I also work in a governmental institution in the ministry. Right. Yeah. So so even if our boss sends mails during the weekend, because she is also very busy. Mm. Uh, well, sometimes there is this insecurity: do I have to follow this up during the weekend or not? But, uh, but uh, the, the agreement is that texting, <laughs> that we text, send uh, text mails, uh, yeah. messages when it's really early.
0: Right. Okay. You have to set up some sort of convention. I know in my work, if uh, the website goes down, mm. I need to contact my technical guy to restart the server. Otherwise, it's down for the whole weekend.
2: Mm.
0: So there are certain things that are very urgent. So again, you have to negotiate what you're going to do. I mean, I'm the boss. I mean, so I have some workers that uh, work at night and don't work in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, So each person is different.
2: But uh, if I can say one more thing, what I found that uh, maybe is a good idea to in myself, is that uh, I don't have to say anything the moment I think about it and disturb a person. Mm. Uh, even if I am f- uh, afraid of forgetting it, I could just note it down on a, on a notebook on right. my desk and then say it when it's appropriate, <laughs> instead right. of the moment it comes up. Right. Because uh, that is very disturbing. Right. Yeah.
0: We can. Note it down or write the email, but put it in the outbox and not send it. There are certain strategies that uh, we can we can do. I think you know there's there's two sides. You know, one is the um, c- you know the compulsion that you know I want to interrupt people and I want you know to to send this and get an instant answer. But the other thing is uh, that compulsion to answer, to look at and answer anything that comes into our box our inbox. That's very hard to resist. And even if you turn off the the sound so you don't hear that it's coming in, still you know, people are checking their phone all the time. It becomes addictive that you're always looking. So this is this is difficult.
2: And it also has to do with not getting nasty surprises when you come to work on Monday morning that you're sort of prepared. (laughs)
0: Well, also, I mean, the the problem that I have, you know, and many other people perhaps have who are, you know, uh, working, uh, supervising a large group of people. I mean, I'm supervising about 54 people. And if you don't answer and take care of things as they come in, You know, I phrase it as, you know, I get punished. Because then I have 50 of them to answer at once. And it's just overwhelming. So how to make that balance? Very difficult, very difficult. And the more that you indulge in it, as it says here in the Wheel of Sharp Weapons, the more it happens. So dealing with karma is not very easy, is it? But at least we have these guidelines. So, why don't we end here for the day? Again, with the dedication, whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper, and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. <coughs>